All right, 1 Timothy chapter 6. Just go to the end of the chapter. This is the 20th and final sermon in 1 Timothy. So a nice even five months. I like it when that works out that way. But we are wrapping up what's going on here. And some closing remarks here uh, from Paul to Timothy. And he's going to return to something we talked about a few weeks back. And that is an issue of money and materialism and wealth. Uh, So let me read our text. Verse 17 is where we'll start. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of, what, of that which is life indeed. O oh, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Grace be with you. So we could divide this section up into two parts. We've got the ideas of the material wealth, 17, 18, 19, and then the closing remarks there to Timothy in 20 and 21. So let's return to that idea of materialism, worldly wealth, And remember, we talked about this earlier in the chapter, that Ephesus was a very wealthy city. and It was a metropolitan area. It was a a commercial port. It was known for uh, silver. It was known for these temples that were ornate in the Temple of Artemis, which is one of the great ancient wonders of the world. Temptation abounds in this city, and a pursuit of wealth is present in this city. And, and I think the interesting thing is, and why does Paul have to address this? Because there, there are kind of two faulty schools of thought uh, when it comes to wealth in the Christian life. There are those that would say, well, we are, you know, the, the monkish idea that we take vows of poverty, and we are miserable, and we have nothing, and we live on in burlap sacks and that kind of thing. And then, of course, on the other end, the thing we hear most often is that prosperity gospel, that God wants you to be rich. He wants to bless you with everything that you ask for. In fact, maybe he's obligated to give you everything that you ask for. You know, those two false teachings kind of dominate, and that's not at all what Paul says here about what money is about. The intriguing thing, I think, is that if you follow biblical principles especially in this country, you're probably going to be pretty wealthy. Does that make sense? And let me try to explain that. Not in a prosperity gospel sense. Not if I do good, God blesses me. What I mean is, if you do all things to the glory of God, you're probably going to advance in your profession. Like If you're the hardest working guy at your job, if you're the most honest person in your workplace, you're probably going to get promoted. You're probably going to make more money. People are probably going to give you more responsibility. And if you are trustworthy, if you are a good steward of money, you're probably going to be less wasteful. You're probably going to be smarter with your money. And so sometimes our bank account can reflect those things. And, but, and so now the question is, what do you do with it when you have the money that you've been given? And that's what Paul's trying to address. And Cotton Mather talked about that. He said, religion begat prosperity and the daughter devoured the mother. You know, that 
religion gave us this work ethic, gave us this idea of pursuing what is glorious to God by glorifying him with our life. And then we turned around and we, we, we took it for ourselves and we used it selfishly. And now the church is being reflected poorly because of that. So again, the question is, what do you do with your money once you have it? And again, it doesn't mean there's some level out there when you get to this level and then you're supposed to do godly things. No, whatever it is you have, you're to do godly things with it. There's a, a famous Jewish uh, rabbinic story. Obviously, this isn't scripture, but uh, it's about a man called Manabaz, and he had inherited this great wealth, but he was a good and he was a kindly, he was a generous man. And in time of famine, he gave away all his wealth to help the poor. And his brothers came to him and said, your fathers laid up treasure and added to the treasure that they had inherited from their fathers, and are you going to waste it all? And he answered, my father's laid up treasure below, I have laid it up above. Sound familiar? My father's laid up treasure of mammon, I have laid up treasure of souls. My father's laid up treasure for this world, I have laid up treasure for the world to come. So what Jesus was saying when he taught that same principle, this was a very Jewish idea. It's a very scriptural idea. The heart of generosity was always present in the law of God. Go back and read that Mosaic law and see, much, see how much provision is within that law for those that cannot provide for themselves. Not for those who will not provide for themselves, but those who cannot provide for themselves. Big difference, right? And, and God's people embody that generosity. Of course, the book of Ruth is, is largely about that same principle. The Old Testament is replete with laws that command generosity. If you are in this covenant community, in that case Israel, you are to be generous with what you have. So, is that true for us in the church in the 21st century? That principle hasn't gone away. That's the heart of the idea. And so, when we're in the world today dealing with so many churches that preach that more prosperity message... We better have a biblical message, a biblical perspective on what wealth is supposed to look like. So that's what Paul tries to say here. He says, instruct those who are rich in the present world. So in 6, 3 through 10, Paul condemned those people who were seeking to be wealthy, those who were trying to store up treasures for themselves. In 17 to 19, he addresses people who are already wealthy, who already have means, and, and he's reinforcing the understanding that it's God who blesses. It's God who gave you this wealth. And God is responsible and, and, and sh- should be consulted and considered if you have worldly wealth, especially if you claim Christ. And Timothy is to instruct these men. We've seen this word a few times in the letter. The, the, the word is parangelo. This is the fifth time he's used it. Here's where he used it before. 1.3, instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. 4.11, prescribe and teach these things. 5.7, prescribe these things as well, so that they may be above reproach. And then 6.13, I charge you in the presence of God. So instruct, prescribe, charge. This isn't a suggestion. <laughs> you tell these men this is the godly principle when it comes to money. This is not just a suggestion. This is to prescribe. You need to do this for your own good. And the subject of being instructed is those who are rich in the present world. Again, as we said earlier, money is the root of all sorts of evil, but it's not evil in and of itself. However, material wealth can be a hindrance to living a godly life and depending fully on Christ. 
Joseph of Arimathea is called a rich man, using this same word in Matthew 27, 57. How did he use his wealth? Well, he used the tomb he had for the Son of God when he died. That's a good use of your resources. Zacchaeus is called a rich man in Luke 19, too. Bad example of using his wealth, and then a good example at the end of using his wealth once he meets Christ. And, of course, probably the, the, the most famous one of use of that word rich is the parable of Lazarus and the rich man in Luke 16. Doesn't end up real well for that rich man. Okay, so what kind of riches? Well, it's the riches that you get in the present world, in the present world. These are material riches. And I said this a couple weeks ago, Paul is adamant that you can't take it with you. These are earthly things. It's in this present world. The Jewish idea was we have a present world and another world. We have this life and we have the next life. We have the present age and the age to come. And so Paul is saying that if you're trusting in things in this time and not in that time, you're missing the complete picture and you're really short-selling what life is really all about. That life is way longer than this life. And that that worldly wealth, if it's held in too high esteem, distracts us from the immeasurable wealth that's waiting for us in eternity. And, and, you know, we're all distracted by those things. We all pay our bills. We all see the prices. We all do those things. And and that idea of these things that are in the present world, Paul knows this firsthand. Look, he uses this exact same term in 2 Timothy 4, 9, and 10 when he speaks of Demas He says, make every effort to come to me soon, for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. So these people are trusting in the riches of this present world. Demas loved this present world, and he abandoned Paul in the ministry. If you're too caught up in the present, you will have no future. That's the picture here. And and he talks about this idea of rich. Usually when this word rich is used, especially when it's applied to people within Scripture, it's not a compliment. It's not a good thing. Notice Luke 6.24. Woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. James 1.11. You want somebody that rips up the rich people? It's James. James likes to go after these folks. He says in 1.11, For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. More from James on this subject in just a little bit. What is Timothy, according to Paul, to instruct these men to do, or more specifically, what not to do? He says, instruct them not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. Conceited, great, great Greek word. Hoopselafroneo, how about that? Used only here in the New Testament. Love it when you find these words that are only in one place. It's a compound word. All right, we're partying. All right, so it's a compound word. The first word is hoopsalos, it means high. The second word is frain, it means understanding. This is high-mindedness. It's thinking you know everything. It's, and what does Paul use it to? He applies it to oneself and one's riches. You know, that's that old philosopher, right? Know thyself, as Shakespeare would write. Okay? Well, that's important. You should know thyself, but... You know, Shakespeare says, be true to thyself. Well, only if thyself has been redeemed. Don't be true to your old self. It's not good. Tell him not to be high-minded. Tell him not to be above learning. Tell him not to be above correction. Why is that unwise? Well, he says because if they do that, then they're going to fix their hope on something that's uncertain. 
Remember, when we talk about hope in the, uh, in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, the word is not how we use hope. You know, we hope, my air conditioner will start working on the truck again, okay? I hope that, ha- well, that's not going to happen, just me wishing it to happen, right? It's not that. Hope in the New Testament is a settled fact. Why is Jesus our hope? Because he's coming back. He's promised that, and it's happening. It's an established fact. It's done in the mind of God. Right? So it's not this, well, I hope it works out for us in the end. No, it, he's our hope because it's established. And so if you're putting your hope on something that's not established, if you're putting your hope on something that's uncertain, that's a very unwise thing to do. Riches are filled with uncertainty. Here today, gone tomorrow. Valuable today, worthless tomorrow. Back in 1 Kings chapter 10, there's a whole list of all the things that Solomon does in his kingdom. How he aggrandizes himself. He does things that Moses told him not to do. He collects horses. He does all these different things. A lot of wives. Um, those kinds of, he builds up fortifications. He does all that. And it says in verse 27 of 1 Kings 10, that's, it says about Solomon, the king, Solomon, made silver as common as stones in Jerusalem. Well, I would say that's great if you're the king making yourself grand within your land. It's not so good if you're the common man trying to feed your family with a pocket full of silver. That, 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 so the wealth, yeah, I, I could show you all this wealth I have, but, but it doesn't mean anything. There's no value in those things. Well, let's bring it to the current day. <laughs> Anybody experiencing this out there right now? Hey, let me give you some stats. This is from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, lest I be accused of making up statistics. Annual inflation rate in the United States accelerated to 8.6% in May of 2022, the highest since December of 1981. Energy prices rose 34.6%, the most since September of 2005, due to gasoline, 48.7%. Fuel oil, 106.7%, the largest increase on record. Electricity, 12%, the largest 12-month increase since August 2006. And natural gas, 30.2%, the most since July 2008. Food costs surged 10.1%, the first increase of 10% or more since March of 1981. Big increases were seen in prices of meat, poultry, fish, and eggs, 14.2%. Other increases were also seen in cost of shelter, 5.5%, the most since February of 91. Household furnishings and operations, 8.9%. Used cars and trucks, 16.1%. And airline fares, 37.8%. Now we're all depressed, I know. That's our current situation. And it seems rather dire, especially when you pull up to the gas pump. But did you know that that's pretty minor in the scope of history when it comes to inflation? Just a few examples. When uh, in the 1990s in the former Yugoslavia, inflation hit 50% for the year, 50%. Venezuela, from 2017 to 2018, consumer prices grew by (laughs) 65,000%. That's what socialism gets you, by the way, important lesson. In Hungary, just after World War II, prices doubled every 15 hours. The daily, and not the yearly, the daily inflation rate was 207%. 
how uncertain is money? That uncertain. That gone tomorrow. I mean, we all realize that those paper bills we carry around are just pieces of paper, right? <laughs> we understand that those numbers you see on our statements are really just numbers. They're just imaginary. There's not a money bin full of gold somewhere. Just numbers. How quickly can that stuff go away? If you put your trust in money, you're going to find yourself on shaky ground. You're going to find yourself on very uncertain ground. Indeed, the Bible speaks to this, doesn't it? Many times. Here's one example, Proverbs 23, 4, and 5. Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. When you set your eyes on it, it is gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies toward the heavens. I love the visual. (laughs) Dollar bills just flying away. That's what happens to this earthly wealth. So what's the alternative? Well, he tells us in verse 17. Rely on God. Hope in God. Not on uncertain finances. Hope on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. James 1.17, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from where? Above. comes from him. Paul's sound advice walks this line between what he's dealing with in Ephesus. On one side, those ascetics that are saying give away everything and live this life of poverty, and the prosperity indulgent folks on the other side. Paul says neither one of those are the way to go. Walk in between that and give God the gratitude for the benefits that you have. I want to notice real carefully here, Paul doesn't tell those rich people in the world to divest themselves of their wealth. It's just not to place their hope in it. There is a place for the resources that we have. Paul doesn't call for the false self-denial that was being preached by the false teachers that probably preached an ascetic but then went home and lived in big houses. Hey, it's not that. The believers were not to exchange materialism for asceticism. That's not his message. But they had to divest themselves of hope in those possessions. You don't have to give away everything that you own. And, and somebody will grab the rich young ruler and say, well, look, Jesus told that guy to give away all he owned. Why did he tell him that? Not because wealth is bad, but because that guy's hope was built entirely on the things that he had. You've got to get rid of that before you can come to me. That's an idol in your life. You can't serve me and that, and so you've got to get rid of that. That was, a, that was particular to that man, and many people suffer from that same problem. But they've got to get rid of their hope in those possessions and change the investment 100% to God. And we don't want a lot of diversity in this portfolio. We're going to put all our eggs in the God basket. That, like, that's where all our investments are going to go. And his divine intention, Paul says, is not asceticism, but to give us all things to enjoy. It, 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 you know, there's, there's, a, there's poor teaching out there of, well, God wants you to be happy. No, but he, he doesn't necessarily want you to be miserable all the time either. We have a good God. He provides for us. He, he blesses us. And, and what does he bless us with? And I've got a lot of scriptures here, so we're going to go through the New Testament. What does he supply us with? Well, let's start with 2 Corinthians 8 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich... Yet for sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become, or might become rich. So we know God is rich, abundantly rich. And what does he provide us with? Ephesians 2.4. But God being rich in mercy. He's rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Romans 9.23. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory. So his grace, his mercy, his glory upon vessels of mercy. That's you and I if you put your faith in Christ. 
which he prepared beforehand for glory. Romans 10.12, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. Romans 11.33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Paul will talk about faulty knowledge at the end of this chapter. This is real knowledge, the depth, the unplowable depths of God's knowledge. Ephesians 1.7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Ephesians 3.8, To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. In Philippians 4.19, And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. I'm going to talk about a blank check. God's got the blank check. He can keep writing blessings to us. And again, that's not a prosperity message. That's a hope on the one that can pay the bills. Verse 18. Instruct him instead to do good, to be rich in good works, not in material things, but in good works, and to be generous and to be ready to share. Paul's saying it's not sinful to be rich and it's not godly to be poor. This is a heart issue. He says people matter more than possessions. And in a world of unending human need, there's always going to be someone in need. There's always going to be something there. Possessions are ultimately worthless compared to what we can do with those possessions. That's the key. Four wise practices. Number one, do good. I mean, it doesn't get more basic than that. Do good. It involves using their wealth in a positive way instead of using it in a self-serving way. That doesn't mean you can't provide for your family. That doesn't mean you can't have a house and a car. It just means there is a selfish way to do things and there's a good way to do things. That good, again, is the Greek word kalos 16 times in First Timothy. The ultimate good, the godly way, the better way. Number two, to be rich in good works. To be rich in good works pointed the wealthy in the direction in which they were really going to find their wealth in the doing of good deeds. Don't be rich in stuff. America loves its stuff. Everybody's got stuff, right? Even if you don't have, you know, if you don't have a six-figure job, you got stuff, right? I mean, I think we talked about a little bit in Solomon's Porch the other day. But you can drive down by the most broken-down place you've ever seen. And there's a satellite dish on the side of that trailer. There's a Camaro or something in the yard. You know, like our our grandparents and great-grandparents couldn't imagine that. You know, that that it's okay because of the Walmart, Amazon culture. You can get stuff. You know, I I mean, when I was, and I'm I'm not that old, when I was a kid, having a a, a TV that wasn't this big was kind of a big deal. Yeah, remember those TVs that were like five thousand pounds to sat in your living room? Okay. Like that was a big deal. You had a, you had a big TV. You know, you could watch the games on those TVs. Now, you know, what do we do before HD? Those it was those TVs. Well, who doesn't have a TV now? There's nobody that doesn't have a TV, and there's nobody that doesn't have a flat screen TV that's at least fifty inches big, right? Like it's it's easy to get stuff in this country, and so you can think you're rich when you really got nothing. And Paul's saying, don't be rich in that stuff. That stuff's going to break down. Let's be rich in good works. These two verbs probably include more than just benevolence, although that's part of it. The need for benevolence is, is emphasized in number three and number four. Number three, to be generous. Well, I don't need to teach too much on what that means, do I? A sharing of wealth with others. And then number four, be ready to share. 
someone who's ready to share, shows that the generous act of giving comes from internal generosity. It's a heart condition. And by the way, those of you that have young children, you realize very early that children are not born with that quality. (laughs) Ready to share (laughs) is not an innate quality of a two or three or four-year-old. And so this has to be an internal change. This has to be off of me and on to others. That I love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then I love my neighbor as myself. That I consider others first, as Philippians would say. Again, Paul does not say the wealthy should dispose of all of their wealth, even most of their wealth. He said they should be ready to share. Ready to share. It's, it's, it's kind of like that idea when he says pray without ceasing. Does that mean we never, we stay on our knees all day long and we just pray? We can't do that. We've got work to do. We have things we have to do. What does it mean? It means always be in the condition where you can lift up a prayer to God. And that's the great blessing of prayer is that through Christ we can pray anytime, anywhere, any, any, any situation where we're in. But be in that mindset. Have your heart tuned to that mindset all the time. And so in the same way that I don't have to go, okay, I'm going to go out and I'm going to share this amount of money with this many people today. No, just be prepared and be ready to share what you have. And if the situation presents itself, be obedient. That's the idea. He says, be ready to share. The Lord will direct you. Presumably, imagine this, God will lead one person to do one thing with his or her money and lead another person to do something else with his or her money, all for his glory. And so Paul is suggesting that genuine wealth is found in what we give, not what we have. It's better to give than to receive. That's the picture. Simple understanding. Not so simple to execute. We all know that to be true. We're not always real good at it when the situation arises. What do they do? It's storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. So it's a question for everyone. What is your treasure? What's your treasure and what kind of foundation is it built upon? That's the question at hand. Wise practice means you do these two things. One, you're storing up for yourselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future. Again, the Christian ethic is not that wealth is a sin. It's that wealth is a responsibility. That if God has given you much, he expects you to use it to his glory. If wealth ministers to nothing but personal pride, if wealth only enriches ourselves, the wealthy individuals, well, then Paul says that becomes your ruination because now you're trusting in uncertain, temporary things. Oh, you'll have your reward in this life, but there's nothing eternal in that. It impoverishes the soul. The more we pursue material wealth, the more our soul gets eaten away by it. But if wealth is used to bring help and to comfort others, even though our bank account might be coming less, we are actually becoming richer. Are we investing in eternal things? Are we supporting missionaries? Are we doing those things? Are we putting funds towards bringing the gospel to people? Is that what we're doing? And so not only is the recipient blessed by that generosity, but Paul says so is the giver that it will do you well to be generous. We know Paul's not saying generous giving leads to salvation. We know better than that. But what do we see over and over again in these epistles? Good works are evidence of your salvation. That because I am saved, my heart condition has changed, 
And now instead of being selfish all the time, now I am in tune with what needs to be done. They assure us that we have eternal life. (laughs) If all you are is selfish all the time, you might doubt the idea that the Holy Spirit is working in you. And what does he say? He says when we do that, we take hold of that which is life indeed. Not in a salvific sense. Okay? Not, I give this amount of money. This is, that's kind of an indulgence thing. Throw the coins in and then you get blessings in heaven. It's not that. Okay? When he says take hold, it's that, I, that it's real. It's in my hands. I can see it. I can feel it. Like I, I know I'm living a changed life because before Christ, I wouldn't have given away a dime. <laughs> And now, all of a sudden, and, and you know, as much as uh, criticism as the church gets in terms of giving and things like that, when you look at the statistics, do you know what group of people gives to charities and things more than anybody else across the planet? It's the church. It's the church. Now, we could argue that maybe people don't give enough and all that kind of stuff. Hey, I'm just telling you that atheists don't give away a lot of money okay? because there's no cause greater than themselves. There's something to this changed heart that changes the way we hold on to our wealth. We tend to hold on a little bit more loosely. And and, and so what does Paul say? If you do that, you'll take hold of what is life indeed. And and what is life indeed? Well, it's not this life. It's not this breathe in, breathe out. It's not this deteriorating body life. This is eternal life. This is life indeed. Just like we needed earlier, Paul needed to serve the widows indeed. Now you need to embrace life indeed. Not this life. Not what's going to fade away. Not what is shaken and uncertain, but that which is certain, that which is promised. And again, I've, I've talked about this before. If you are in Christ, eternal life has already begun for you. But at the end of this life, all this is going to pass away. What will last? That which was done for Christ. And so if you're holding on to that life, If you're holding on and looking at eternity now, that'll change the way you live your life today. If I have an eternal perspective that I know this is just a short time, that this is just a vapor, man, that changes the way I'm going to live my life. Because if I look at it and I go, I got to get as much stuff as I can before I die. (laughs) Well, that's going to be a fruitless pursuit because you'll never get to the end of it. Christ taught the same thing, didn't he? Matthew chapter 6, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in or steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. How important is your heart? (laughs) Pretty important, because if you don't have a new one, you don't know Christ. Let's see the other side, because James gives us the alternative for those, the godless ones who pursue wealth. He says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. James isn't very seeker sensitive. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaot. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. In case you weren't wondering where James stood on this idea of the rich taking advantage of others. 
He says it's not going to end well for you if you put your trust there. Instead, take hold of life indeed. Antas zoes. Certain. Truthful. That's what indeed means. That's that antas idea. And, and zoe is, the, is life itself. Zoe, there, there are two words for life in the Greek. One is a bios, where we get biology. Bios, that means someone is breathing. <laughs> Their heart is beating. We all have bios. Okay? But do we have zoe? Zoe is life. And zoe is what life is all about and what it is encompassed by. And do we have real, true, antas zoes? Not the vapor that is this earthly life, but eternal life in Christ. And that's not only a future expectation. We have that. That is a future reality. But it's a reality experienced by believers in the here and now. That, that you can have a taste of eternity now. Because the Holy Spirit lives within you. Because you are experiencing eternal life now. And again, knowing that eternity is secure will change the way you look at the world. It will change the way you live your life. And will, again, hold loosely to the things of this world. And to not get caught up in things like materialism. Because we know with certainty that we possess life indeed. A lot of people have life. They breathe oxygen. But do they have life indeed? That makes all the difference. Augustine put it this way. He said, From the goods which they distributed to others and so placed in greater safety, they derived more happiness than they incurred sorrow from the goods which they anxiously hoarded and so lost more easily. Nothing could be really lost on earth save what one would be ashamed to take to heaven. The only things you can lose here, you can't take with you anyway. It's not worth holding on to. Paul presents a balanced approach to wealth in this life. Again, he is walking that line between asceticism and materialism. He is against materialism. What do I mean by that? An obsession with material possessions. We, we like material possessions. He sets the simplicity of a godly lifestyle. It's not who gets the most toys wins. He's against asceticism, which is the repudiation of all that materialism. I'm so holy, I don't pursue any of that stuff. But what is that? That's self-serving. That's self-sufficiency. He says, no, don't be like that. Be grateful for what God has given you and use it well. He's against covetousness, the lust to have more possessions. He says you should be content. That's what he taught earlier. And he's against selfishness. The accumulation of goods and stuff for ourselves. What does he say? No, you should be generous. Why? Because God was generous. Imitate him. Be generous because he's been generous to you. Simplicity, gratitude, contentment, generosity. That's a healthy Christian life. If we are embodying those characteristics, we'll avoid a lot of the pitfalls. Then we get to verse 20, and this is a final exhortation from a spiritual father to a spiritual son. And you can see it in that first thing. Oh, Timothy. That's a personal, emotional touch to Paul's charge here. He loves his son in the faith. He's trying to spare him from more pain, more trials. He says, oh, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. Guard it and avoid worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. 
Now, it's interesting because this is almost prophetic. We could probably say it is. Because in later centuries, as the years go by, there will be a false teaching that rises up in the early church called Gnosticism. And you know what Gnosticism was all about? Knowledge. Special knowledge that was available only to a special group of people. And it really infiltrated the early church. It led a lot of people astray. Because, you know, knowledge sounds like a good thing. We like knowledge. We don't want to be ignorant. Give me more knowledge. But knowledge also puffs up. Knowledge also makes conceited. Gnostics felt that there was a hierarchy of spiritual beings relate, that, 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 that in humanity in terms of God. So one person was more spiritual than another. And there was this kind of competition in order to get more knowledge. And salvation only came by mastering a certain level of that knowledge. You can even see some of that in some of the Eastern religions. You talk about the, the idea of, being, uh, of finding nirvana or enlightenment. It's that same kind of pursuit. And they thought the world, matter, things like that, were evil. And so everything was this spiritual knowledge. And the early seeds of that heretical teaching were already evident here. And so what does Paul say? These people that are claiming knowledge, but it's really false knowledge. And so we see it come to fruition later on. And, and we know from earlier in the letter that he hopes to return to Timothy. He hopes to get back to Ephesus and see him, but he doesn't know if he'll be able to get there. And there's no record that he ever did get back to Ephesus. So he gives him this concluding advice. And he says, Timothy, guard it. You've been entrusted with something, now guard it. Guard what has been entrusted to you. He will double down in 2 Timothy 1.14, just a couple years later when he writes that letter, and he says, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. It's the same advice. This is what Timothy is always supposed to do. It's the same word used to describe the soldiers guarding Peter in prison in Acts 12. Is a military kind of term. It's also used to describe when one would keep the law. You were to guard the law. You would protect things of value. You would maintain spiritual discipline. You, mean you would guard your heart. You would guard your mind. Those were this, it was this disciplined idea. So there is a diligent, intentional stand guard over what I have. What I have is valuable. I need a security system over what this valuable thing is. What has been entrusted to him is one word. It's paratheke. It's a financial term. It denotes a sum deposited into the responsibility of another. Now, for us, we would just say, well, that's putting a deposit into the bank. Right? They didn't have First National Bank in the first century. Okay? There might have been some smaller ideas like that. But what would, why this is uh, important for the first century is there were no safety deposit boxes in the first century. And if you were in Rome, perhaps you might get called off to go fight in a war. And wars didn't last for two months or three months. Sometimes they lasted for ten years. And so you needed, if you were going to leave your home and leave your valuables, you needed to leave your valuable things in someone else's possession. That's paratheke. I would make a paratheke to a friend, and I would say, when I get back, I will collect my things from you. And that may even be your family. <laughs> That may even be your wife if you have to go and fight these things. But you would make this deposit and you would say, protect them while I'm gone. And so what's the key about that person you just handed it off to? They better be trustworthy. You bet. So, so, so what's Paul saying? Timothy, you are trustworthy. 
You've been given something of great value. Don't be careless with it. Don't leave it out in the open. Guard it so that you can do this. Be a good steward of what has been given to you. And, and, and why is that even more important? Because you didn't make it. It doesn't belong to you. You've just been entrusted to protect it. Right? There's a difference between I'm, I've made this and it's mine and I'm the creator and I'm the originator. No, this has been given to you and you're going to have to give an account on how you guard it. Don't be frivolous with this, Timothy. Be on guard. What is this paratheke then? What has been entrusted to Timothy? Well, I would argue it's the true gospel in the face of the false gospel that's being, tre- being preached there in Ephesus. And, and Ephesus is kind of the figurehead church in Asia Minor. If Ephesus falls, what will happen to the rest of the churches? If it falls into heresy, the others won't be very far behind. And he says, entrust yourself. D- hold on to that. And how do you do that practically? He says, avoid a couple things. Avoid worldly and empty chatter. Remember we talked earlier about what these guys like to talk about? Meaningless things. Strange doctrines. In the weeds. Worldly there is used three times in 1 Timothy. It was translated profane, describing unbelievers in 1.9. And then it was used to describe those old wives' tales in 4.7. He'll say it again in 2 Timothy 2.16 in reference to the ramblings of a heretic. Don't get into rambling conversations with heretics. He says because it's worldly and it's empty, empty chatter. Kenophonia, it's a compound word. Kenos is vain, phone is sound, vain chatter. It's meaningless chatter. Don't engage in that. Paul says don't even participate in those foolish discussions. I, I, I think that we, we sometimes think, all right, I've always got to give an answer. I've always got to answer the questions that are put forth. Well, I would say this. We should never hesitate to engage in a willing dialogue. If somebody wants to have a conversation about the gospel, a legitimate conversation, even if they disagree with you, if we want to have a legitimate dialogue, mean, it's just you can't even imagine it because nobody wants to have a dialogue anymore. But if you come across somebody that actually wants to have a dialogue, then let's have a dialogue. Respectful, we can do those kinds of things. But there is, as we see in Scripture, such a thing as casting pearls before swine. And we have to use our discernment in order to understand when we should and when we should not speak. I would just say this. You and I are not obligated to answer any and every question that someone raises especially when they get to the ridiculous. Sometimes silence is the godly approach. Why? Well, because Proverbs 26.4 says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will also be like him. (laughs) Mark Twain said, Never argue with stupid people because they'll drag you down to their level and beat you with experience. It's it's kind of saying the same thing, isn't it? (laughs) Right? Stupid is as stupid does. Don't deal in that. That's, that, that. That's not productive to the gospel mission. Simply put, Paul doesn't want Timothy to waste time in refuting erroneous ideas that have nothing to do with the true gospel. He has to ignore them. And, and let's be honest, sometimes it's really tough to ignore. I mean, you read something and it's so ridiculous. You're like, I've got to respond to this. And then 20 minutes later, you're down a rabbit hole somewhere talking about nothing. What are we doing for the gospel? The knowledge, and I put knowledge in quotation marks there, of the heretics is empty. It's, it, they're, they're fables, they're genealogies, they're asceticism. They're all these things that they've been focusing on. There is good and valuable knowledge for us to possess. 
but these heretics don't have that knowledge. They possess another knowledge entirely, or maybe better said, nothing else entirely. And so falsely called knowledge is, again, one word, pseudo-denomu. It means false knowledge, pseudo-knowledge. Sounds smart, but the emperor has no clothes. There's no knowledge in what they're giving us. There's no truth in what they're giving us. Just talking points. And unfortunately, some have already listened in Ephesus. He says in verse 21, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. It's already happening. Once again, sin makes you stupid. And the result is they have gone astray from the faith. That word gone astray means to deviate from. It's the same word stoikos that is often used with sin. It literally means to miss the mark. Okay? And so the, the question is, who are, are we talking about people who, who um, are saved and have wandered into heresy, or are we talking about people who were never believers and walked away? Well, probably both. Probably a combination of that in the Scriptures. But the idea here is they have deviated from what was taught and they're going in a different direction. That could happen to either a believer or an unbeliever. Different judgments, obviously, but it's tragic either way. Some have professed this false knowledge, and they've gone astray from the faith. Of course, Paul ends with a simple closing. Grace be with you. Now, if you have a King James in your lap, you've also got an amen at the end of that. Probably not in the early manuscripts. Probably what happened is when people would read a letter, at the end of it, they would say, Amen. And so it got added as a reading later on. And because where were these letters often read? In churches. And there's evidence right here in this simple phrase, grace be with you, that this was a public reading thing. Grace, chorus, can mean a few different things. Now, when we talk about by grace you have been saved, We're talking about salvific grace at that point, right? That you were justified by the grace of God. That is absolutely true. Here, what is Paul talking about? Not salvific grace be with you, but sanctifying grace be with you. That we need grace day by day in our pursuit of holiness. We need grace to persevere. We need grace to stand firm against false teaching. It's the same way that saved can kind of be used. You are saved you are justified, you are being saved, you are being sanctified, and you will be saved because you're going to be glorified. Now, all that's guaranteed. It's a package deal, but we see that laid out the same way. So we need grace at salvation to believe, but we also need grace to persevere. We also need grace to live the Christian life. And what's, why does Paul end this way? Because he knows only divine grace can keep us close to Christ. So at the letter's conclusion and at its beginning, back in Chapter 1, verse 2, if you remember what he said to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. He started with grace. He ends with grace. Because Timothy's going to need grace to lead this church. The apostle wishes for Timothy and the congregation above all else to experience the transforming grace of God and the persevering grace of God, the sustaining grace of God. And how do we know that this uh, letter was read in front of the entire church? Well, it has to do with that you at the end of the verse. That you, and here's where our English is entirely unhelpful. Because when we say you, we can mean the individual, or I could mean the whole room. And so you got to look at the Greek and see what's here. This is a genitive plural. It's the y'all, okay? That's the translation. 
This confirms that the letter would have been read to the entire congregation because the conclusion is grace be with you all. So what's the expectation? That when that letter got there, now there are personal admonitions to Timothy in here. He is, he is addressed. And, and again, I think I've mentioned this before. The general idea is everybody thinks Timothy's kind of this weak kind of guy and he needs to get stronger. Well, I think we could all be stronger, right? But I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think we've got people rebelling against Timothy because he's a younger man. And Paul is having this read before the congregation to say, Timothy has my full authority. He has my backing. Follow him. Now, again, he may be weak in some areas and he needs to strengthen himself and all that, but he, Paul is saying to the congregation, this is the guy that's leading, follow him. I think that's the point. All right, well, so we end First Timothy, and then we wonder, well, what happened? Where's Paul Harvey with the rest of the story? When do we find out what else happens? Well, let, we can jump ahead about 30 years. Let's go to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 2. <clears throat> Again, 1 Timothy written in the early 60s, Revelation written in the mid-90s. And this is what he says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my namesake and have not grown weary. Some of that is by reason of Timothy laying this foundation. But he says, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So a mixed bag 30 years later. Really good on doctrine. Seems like Timothy laid the foundation. John as well dealt with the false teachers that were there at Ephesus. But they lost their way in another way. And so positive and negative. We're good on doctrine, not so good on love. And the problem is, as years went by, Ephesus kind of went up and down. It kind of depended on who the emperor in charge was. Once the, uh, uh, Constantine was converted and the Roman Empire became more Christian, uh, Ephesus kind of became a tourist spot. There were churches there, a lot of ancient churches there, and people would come and visit these churches. And in those older days, these churches would have relics and you know, all these ridiculous things. They would have a piece of wood from the cross or a hair from Jesus' beard or, you know, all these crazy stuff um, that they would have there, and people would come and visit. But by the 6th or 7th century, Ephesus had fallen into disrepair, and when the Muslims come through and, the, and they take over this area, Ephesus kind of becomes a forgotten place. So about 700 years after this, Ephesus is in ruin, this wealthy city this prosperous city, this city with ancient wonders. Later on, these cities with wonderful, beautiful churches. Well, that should bring us back to what Paul said here, isn't it? It's once a beautiful place. It's temporary. Those cities don't last. Don't put your trust in a city that's going to waste away. Put your trust in the city of God. Only one city lasts for eternity, 
And so it, it, there's an important lesson, even if we just follow the trajectory of one city for less than a millennia, less than a thousand years, we see a city go from the top to the bottom to forgotten. Now it's just ruins. And people will go there, and I'd, I'd love to go to Ephesus and see the ruins and all that kind of stuff. But that's all it would be. This used to be a great place. This Paul was here. Timothy was here. John was here. Well, that's pretty cool for us to look back at that. But if all you see are the ruins, what has become of these earthly things? Any questions as we wrap up? I got a few minutes. Marshall. Three years or so. Three to four, I would say. Um, I would put 1 Timothy in 63, 64. I would put 2 Timothy in 66, 67. So somewhere in that area. Yeah. Yeah, and obviously Paul has been back, put, thrown back into prison, a much worse prison for the second one. So a, a much different tone in 2 Timothy than 1. Yeah. Anything else? Yeah, Dave. I don't think so. Yeah, I think he came after Timothy. Now, we don't know exactly when Timothy left. He was still there, obviously, when Paul wrote 2 Timothy. Uh, so he's still there in the late 60s, and John probably got there around that time. So I don't know if he was the direct replacement or, you know, Timothy said, I've got to go, let's bring John in. Um, again, there's a lot of factors in there we don't know. When did Mary die? Those kinds of things. But John is there for, um, for a, a good amount of time. Tradition usually says about 15 years or so. Uh, from around 69, 70 to the mid-80s before he starts getting, uh, raising the ire of some folks and getting sent to exile and all that. So John writes all this stuff from 85 to 95. Yeah. Anything else? Yeah. That's a good question. Um, I don't know off the top of my head. Um, I've never heard it if, uh, if there is. That's a I'm going to go look that up. <laughs> That's a great question. Yeah, we have it for all the apostles, and we have it for some others, but I'm going to, yeah, I've never heard anything for Timothy. I'll check that out. Really good question. <laughs> anything that makes me go look something up, I, I like it. <clears throat> See, I'm not into all this knowledge. I don't have all the knowledge. I need more knowledge. Okay? Just biblical knowledge. Yeah, that's right. All right. Let me close this in prayer. Father, I thank you for tonight. Thank you for our time in 1 Timothy. I pray it was profitable. I pray it gave us a, a picture into the early church, uh, the difficulties that Timothy was dealing with, the parallels that we see in our own day, uh, that you would help us to do church well, that you would help us to, uh, to honor you with all that we do, that we are biblical uh, in our approaches. Thank you for uh, Paul, a spiritual father, writing to Timothy, a spiritual son. Thank you for that example. Thank you for that investment. Uh, Paul knew about investing in eternal things, and it, it was oftentimes people. It was uh, these good brothers, and, um, and we, we see the fruit in these men as they were faithful. We even see those that weren't so faithful, and we see the fruit in that perseverance and, uh, and, and things that, that, that it built in Paul. More dependence on you, uh, thorns in the flesh, and whatever that was, Lord, but... Um, the great examples that we have from your word, not because these men were great men, but because they served a great God, because they had a great Savior. Thank you for our time in this uh, study over the last five months, and pray you were glorified, and uh, help us as we move forward. Continue to study your word. May it never end. In Jesus' name, amen.